So Moses is the author of the book of Deuteronomy, of course. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, among conservative and orthodox theologians, there's very little doubt uh, that Moses is the author. Uh, there may have been a few inspired edits by later um, priests, but Moses is the author of 99% of Deuteronomy. The setting of this book, just to recap, it's been almost a month since we've talked about it, so I'm going to recap quickly. The setting of this book, the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. So they've been wandering 40 years. All the older generation is now dead. And now these are the children of that first generation that came out with two exceptions, with Caleb and Joshua being the only real survivors of that first generation. So this is just prior to entering the promised land. So these people have probably not seen the, the fire on Mount Sinai. And if they did, they were children at the time. Um, so this is a covenant renewal document. This is the book of Deuteronomy is uh, outlined very much like the ancient Caesarean treaty documents. And dozens of these have been discovered by archaeologists and they follow the same pattern. So if you look at your, your cardstock, the Caesarean covenant treaty document really is the, the pattern that Moses used as he laid out the book of Deuteronomy. Last time we preached in Deuteronomy, it was verses 1 through 8, which is the preamble. The preamble is just establishing who God is. He's introducing the sovereign in this covenant treaty document. You would introduce the, the ruling king uh, in the treaty document. And then the prologue, which goes until chapter 4, verse 43, is just a recounting of the history of all of the interaction between the king and all of his subjects. And then he goes into stipulations of the covenant, which actually are on the back of the cardstock. The stipulations of the covenant are just the Ten Commandments. And he outlines all of the Ten Commandments, and he walks through each one of them. In life, how they should be expected to live out these commandments in life. Then, the, then after that, there's blessings and curses of the covenant, which we see in Deuteronomy 27 to 29. Then the maintenance of the covenant, how it's per, to be perpetuated throughout the years, throughout the generations. How are they going to, how are your children and your grandchildren going to remember this? Then there's oaths that are taken, and then witnesses to the covenant as well. So where are we today? We're just beginning. The, well, the prologue is from chapter one one until four forty three. But it's just after the preamble, and it's just beginning the really the prologue of this covenant document. And it is a covenant renewal document. Um, Dr. Scott Redd, um, an Old Testament scholar at RTS, he calls this the theological core of the Old Testament. If you understand Deuteronomy, you really understand the Scriptures, I would argue, because Jesus, when he preaches, when he teaches, he's basically drawing from Deuteronomy in almost every case. It's pretty powerful. Once you see it, um, you'll begin seeing Deuteronomy all through the New Testament. It's just going to start popping out at you. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you know, there's this perception that the Old Testament is this hard God who's just really strict. And then the New Testament God is just this wonderful, loving God of grace. It's not true. It's the same God. And we see grace after grace after grace in Deuteronomy. He reminds them over and over again. He chose them because he loved them, not because they were numerous or they were good. It's all grace, not because of anything they had done. And as adopted children, they are called to follow the family 
the family law, the family rules, which were summarized at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. And now he's going to go through this covenant renewal with all of these children who are now grown up, 40 to however old. Well, I guess there were some born in the wilderness as well. So every adult and all of their children, many of them hearing the covenant, expounded for the very first time before they entered the promised land. So in verses 9 through 18, we see God transitioning to just showing His greatness and fulfilling His promises. Um, and we're going to talk about that in verses 9 through 15. The, the important thing is that He's calling them to remember, to remember all that He's done. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? This is verses 9 through 18. This is inspired scripture preserved for you tonight. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord, your God, has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for yourselves, choose for your tribes, wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered to me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time, all these things that you should do. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful privilege and honor it is to have your word. What a privilege to be able to bring your word to your people. And I pray that... Um, that you would use these studies and these notes, that your people would be enriched and encouraged. Lord, that you would encourage my own soul. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You are truly our rock and our redeemer. And without you, nothing is said that needs to be heard. So we pray that you would, by your spirit, open my mouth and open all of our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. We need to remember God's promises. His promises never, ever fail. They never fail. They are a constant on the earth. Something else that just made me think of um, something that's been part of my life. It's part of all of our lives in many ways. Uh, another constant is gravity. You know, if I take this water bottle and I drop it, every one of us knows what's going to happen. It's going to fall to the ground. A child knows this. Gravity is a constant on the earth. 
regarding sustained flight, there's, there's things that have to be overcome, but the main thing you have to overcome is gravity. You need lift to be greater than drag. You need thrust to be greater than weight. But all of this is in relation to gravity. Gravity is always pulling everything to the ground. If you have something that's heavier than air and it's flying, if you lose thrust, you know where you're going. You're not going up. You're going down. Gravity is used in aerial combat all the time. In World War II, the, the, the planes would meet in, in combat, and as they would merge, they immediately knew which was the better aircraft because they knew the fighting capabilities of all the aircraft. And if you were in an aircraft that wasn't as good, you had one ace up your sleeve, and you know what it was? Point straight down and run as fast as you possibly can because gravity makes all things good when you want to go fast. Gravity is a constant on the earth. It's something that always has to be considered. And if you don't consider gravity in your life, you're going to hurt yourself again and again and again. Well, similarly, God's promises never fail. All of God's promises are like gravity. They're certainties. They're true. And they will always, always come to pass. Well, this is the first thing that Moses wants to do for the people of Israel is remind them of God's promises and His fulfilling of His promises. And he starts in verse 10. That's the first point that His promises never fail. He says, The Lord God has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. So that should remind you of something. It should remind you of Genesis chapter 15. The promise God made to Abraham. Abraham said, I don't have any kids yet. You've told me that I'm going to have many descendants. I don't even have a child. I've been here 15, 20 years. I have no children at all. And God took him outside in Genesis 15, 5 and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you can. So shall your, your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Moses is saying, he did it. God did it. What he told you, he did it. You are as numerous as the stars of heaven. Excuse me. So the sovereign, the king, is reminding his subjects, Israel, as they prepare to enter the promised land, that his promises never fail. He promised Abraham something, and he's done it. And if you look at the very first promise that God made Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and when you think of God's promises, His covenant promises, you need to first think of Abraham. Like that's the baseline. Go to Abraham. Chapter 12, 15, and 17. Those are where His promises are. So you go to chapter 12, and Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then Genesis 15 builds on that, and Genesis 17 builds on that as God kind of, he, he fleshes out all that will be promised in this covenant with Abraham. But notice one thing. Abraham just goes. That's what Abraham does. He just goes. But all the promises really are centered not on Abraham, but on God. If you look at Genesis 12, four times God says, I will. I will. 
I will. I will. Certainly that's helpful for us when we think of the promises of God. Abraham certainly did his part. He walked forward in the direction God told him to go. That's our part, to walk in the direction of God. But the promises of God are accomplished by God. I will. I will. I will. That's called grace. In chapter 17, he, he expands on that promise even more, and he says that kings to Abraham, kings shall come from you. Of course, that, that had not happened yet in the time of Moses. They had not even gotten the land yet. The land was part of the promise. They were not yet a blessing to all the nations, but they did have a numerous offspring, and these other things were coming later. So Moses is telling them that this has happened. They were in slavery for 400 years. It seemed like God had forgotten them. Do you sometimes feel like God's just forgotten you? I've been praying for this for 400 years, God. Are you ever going to answer me? I've been praying for this thing. This problem has been around for a long time. I've been struggling with this thing forever. God hadn't forgotten any of His promises. None of them. He actually told Abraham it was going to be 400 years before the, the sin of the Amorites had reached its fullness, before they would come out of Egypt. But some may have felt like God had nothing for them. And then they've been wandering in the wilderness. They'd seen their parents all die because of disobedience. Can you imagine? How come dad died? Um, he was disobedient. How come mom died? Um, she was disobedient to God. They were cursed to die in the wilderness. Hmm, sorry. You can imagine these people. They must have felt like God, maybe they felt like God had nothing but wrath and punishment for them. That he had forgotten his promises, but he had not. Moses says, you are now a numerous people, more numerous than the stars in the sky. In Numbers, there were two census. Sensi? What's multiple of that? Censuses? There were two censuses that were done numbering the people. And the new generation numbered 601 plus thousand fighting men. 601,000. That's a big army. Plus women and children. That's a huge group of people. God's promises certainly had been fulfilled. And the future promise of inheriting the land, they were about to enter the land to do that. So this is why this whole this covenant treaty document is so important. It's, it's a reauthorization of this treaty. They were about to inherit the promised land. They needed to remember that God was with them and true to all of His promises. For application on this first point, I think that first we need to also remember that the promises to Abraham point straight to Jesus. They do. The promises to David point straight to Jesus. We look to the fulfillment of this numerous people. And this is true. Abraham or Moses told them, you are more numerous than the stars in the sky. And they were. They were a numerous people. Was this a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham? Yes. Was it the ultimate fulfillment? No. It was only partially complete. It was a shadow of the fulfillment that would come in Christ Jesus. And Paul teaches that we are now children of Abraham. In other words, we are the true Israel. Everyone who has faith in Christ is a son or daughter of Abraham. 
So the family, family of Abraham, as the church grows, the family of Abraham is growing exponentially. And indeed, in the end, we will see that even the, the literal blood descendants of Abraham are going to be coming back into God's family through faith in Christ. If Romans 12 and 13 makes sense. So the promise to Abraham is fully realized in Jesus Christ. And the number of people that are part of this family of Abraham in heaven are going to be so great that none of us can count them. I mean, literally, the Bible says that. Revelation 7, verse 9, John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of being more numerous than the stars of heaven. It's in heaven itself. So suffice it to say that the 70 descendants of Abraham, who in the time of Joseph went to Egypt, 400 years later, they are a massive population. And that's what God wants them to remember. I promised you this would happen, and it has. So trust me. Trust me more every day. His promises are true. What we talked about in Genesis 17, this is another promise that ultimately is fulfilled in the line of David, the earthly king. In Genesis 17, Abraham was promised that kings would come from him, from his loins. Kings. God promised David that his line was the fulfillment of that promise. He told David that he would never cease to have a man on the throne. Well, that's a problem if you know the history of Israel because during the exile, there was no king. What was going on? Had God forgotten his promise? Jeremiah anticipates this in Jeremiah 33, verse 14. He says, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, capital B, branch, to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, quote, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. God is saying, my promises are like gravity. They're like the day and like the night. You cannot stop them. So who was the greater David? Who was the Levitical priests who are always reigning? It's Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior. And nothing can ever change the promise of God. It will be fulfilled. So in verse 10, he's saying, remember God's promises. But also remember His faithfulness. Remember your history. This is critically important. He wants them to remember where they've come from and what God has done. History is so undervalued by society and our culture. I speak as a true history major. I know I'm different from most people, but I love history. Uh, I'm just wired to love history. But it's important for all of us, in one sense, to love our history, to learn our history, to remember where God has brought us from and where He has brought us to. By doing this, you become thankful and grateful. And if you don't remember where you've come from, you just become bitter and hateful. Deuteronomy 6, really all through Deuteronomy, we see commands to remind and teach our children of their heritage in the Lord. Remind them where they've come from. Teach them diligently so that when they ask and their children ask and their children ask, why are we doing this? You can tell them, look to the Lord. Look at what He's done for us. All through the Psalms, we see similar instruction. We are to remember all that God has done for us. So Moses isn't just saying, remember God's promises. He's saying, remember God's promises all through history. And remember His faithfulness all through history. And I think this this failure of the church and of our culture is a pretty easy... It helps us really to understand the current hatred of America's Christian history and really of all of Western civilization. Kids don't know anything about where we've come from. They don't know very they know very little about how Western civilization, inspired by the scriptures, changed the world for the good. Rather, it's all about oppression and hatred and blah blah blah. Our children need to know who we are and to need need to know the impact of God's Word on the world. They need to remember. But also as Americans, we need to remember all of God's blessings for us. We do live in a very precious time in history from 1700 until today. What a, a blessed place to live. It's unique in the history of the world. And yet our children would... And our grandchildren may think that it's nothing. Like it means nothing. We've forgotten everything. Half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence had divinity school training. These were godly men. Not all of them, of course. But half of them went to Bible school. Twelve of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Presbyterians. They knew their doctrine. They knew God's sovereignty on the earth. They trusted Him. One of the signers was a minister, a Presbyterian minister, John Witherspoon. These are men who knew their history. They knew God. And they knew that God was involved in every bit of what was going on. And now it seems that we have forgotten. And Have you seen some of the degrees they offer in college now? It's stuff that I've never heard of, like oppression studies or memology. 
literally. What is that? Like at least study science and technology and engineering and math. Let's start there. Let's, let's learn something real and true. Or history would be good. But Americans like the Israelites, we need to remember God's grace in our history. We're not the chosen people. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is God has been good to us. More good than we deserve. We need to remember His promises to His church. And see His faithfulness to the American church throughout the generations. To preserve His church here. Even at Meadow Creek. You read the history book that Helen and some other people wrote. And read the other book too if you want. But the blue book shows all of the different trials that uh, the church has gone through. And you can read between the lines and put yourself in those shoes. And you just feel a sense that God preserved this church. God did the work. He's blessed the Christian church in America by His own grace, for His own purposes, not because we deserve it. And if we would remember that, I think we'd be less likely to complain and be very grateful for the position that the American church is in. We're in a position to be salt and light because it's getting very unsalty, very bland, very dark. The lesson of our history is the same as Israel's history. It's not that our ancestors were more faithful than us. It's that God is faithful. And His faithfulness and His goodness and fulfilling His promises gives, leads us to responsibility. We have responsibility here on the earth too. And that's the second thing that we see in this particular text. God says, I've been faithful. I've accomplished my part of the promise. And now you have to be faithful and do you have to do some work. Some responsibilities are implied because of my faithfulness. Namely, there have to be elders. There have to be leaders. There has to be, there has to be an authority structure because Moses said he could not do it on his own. So one of the responsibilities was leadership. We see representative government established in Israel. Look at verses 9 through 15. Moses said, I'm not able to bear you myself. In verse 12, how can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? He says, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered, the thing you have spoken is good for us to do. Verse 9 is literally, I cannot carry you myself. God promised a numerous people, and that meant Moses could not do all the work by himself anymore. So what was he to do? If you remember the story in Exodus 18, it's told. Jethro, his father-in-law, tells him that he isn't being very smart. And I think it's, I mean, I always thought it was interesting that it was his father-in-law who's instructing him. What a, what a great example. To be instructed by your father-in-law. I'm saying that because I've got sons-in-law now who need to listen to their father-in-law. But uh, Jethro's fa his father-in-law tells him he's not being very smart. He needs to appoint representatives among the people to handle these handle these lower cases. And in Numbers 11, well, we re we read in Numbers 11 that God commanded the appointment of elders, and then here in Deuteronomy says it that Moses commanded the appointment of these elders. I mean, they're all correct. This is just showing God's providence. He uses men to accomplish His will. It's an example of His providence. He used Jethro to bring it to Moses' ears. And then Moses gave the inspired command. 
So God brought great blessing to His people by giving them these representative elders. These men chosen by them, but appointed by Moses. This seems to be a good pattern for government, a good pattern for church government, a good pattern for national government. It seems to be a blessing because God did it for His own people. It was necessary for the proper administration of the people and also for the coming battles and the wars in Canaan. They had to have officers. They had to have authority. They had to be able to give commands and and see them followed. So these leaders were not just leading judicially as judges. They were leading in every way and into battle. This was a, a militia. Most of these men were certainly officers in the army. And the people thought this was a good plan. They were about to enter the promised land. They knew they were going to be fighting. This wasn't a leadership that was just theological or theoretical. It was going to be battlefield reality. These were commanders of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. In the Roman army, a commander of a hundred was called? Anybody? Centurion, right. And a commander of a thousand? Anyone? I can't remember either. But they did have one. Uh, This was for the battlefield that they would have these commanders, but it was more than the battlefield. As they entered the promised land into the, the new life that they were going to have, they would have authority. They would have authority structures to administer this covenant document. These people were were working not for each other, but working for God. And this would be a wonderful blessing for the people of God. The smallest issue would have a proper forum. I mean, if it were just Moses or just his successor, can you imagine if you had a problem just with you and someone in your church? You couldn't get through it. What would you do? Well, it's just a little thing. Forget about it. We'll just be mad at each other. No, there's a, there's a place to take it up the chain if you have to. But even the smallest thing, the smallest thing could be addressed. There will always be bad leaders in any country, in any church, but the fact remains we're blessed to have representative government wherever we find it. It's a blessing. It's established by God. It's not the only way to do government, but it certainly seems to be a great blessing. It's a common grace. And representative government is a very, very good common grace. So God blessed His promise. They were a numerous people. That implied responsibility. And that responsibility meant representative elders with authority, with the responsibility to carry out God's Word. Well, then He gives them duties. These duties are in verses 16 and 17. He says, I charged your judges to hear the cases, judge righteously, shall not be partial, shall not be intimidated by anyone. And if the case is too hard, you bring it to me. So besides being officers for the army, they were also to be judges. I was going to try to get a picture of Lady Justice. And if you've ever seen Lady Justice, she's in front of, it's a statue in front of a lot of courthouses. And it's this, this statue of a woman And in one hand, she's holding scales. And in the other hand, she's holding a sword. And she's blindfolded. So what are are they saying? And this, this 
predates America. This is back in Greek times. Lady Justice. She's blindfolded because she's to be impartial. It doesn't matter who's in front of her. She doesn't see. All she does is hear the truth and then make a decision that's impartial. The scales mean it's supposed to be fair judgment. It's supposed to be based on law. She takes the law and she applies it fairly, equally. And the sword is that she's unintimidated. She's not intimidated by anyone or anything. She executes justice. Well, these are all the same things that Moses highlights here for these judges. They're to judge righteously, to be impartial, to be unintimidated, and to be accountable. To judge righteously. That's the first thing we see between all the brothers and the aliens within their their nation. Aliens did not have the same legal status in Israel in every way, but they were to be treated equally according to the law. They were not to be given any harsher punishments because they were aliens, nor were their complaints to be ignored. But judging righteously for all who lived in the land, this was the duty of the judge. It wasn't a matter of deciding what they thought was fair and good in every case. It was to use the law to make righteous judgments. Does that sound familiar? We have a law in our country too. It's called the Constitution. The judge's job is not to decide whatever he thinks is good. It's to apply the law. It's the same exact principle. They were to use the law to make righteous judgments. This is called justice. It's just behavior according to the law. The law revealed the heart of God, the only righteous one. Later in Deuteronomy 16, God says this much. You shall appoint judges and officers in all the towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they will judge the people with a righteous judgment. Justice and only justice you shall follow. So the Scripture highlights not just their duty to judge righteously according to the law, but also to be impartial. This is the blindfold. It should be equally applied to the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, to leaders, their families, as well as you and your families. No favoritism given to anyone. Not given to the rich because they're rich or to the poor because they're poor. They're to be impartial. These judges are also to be unintimidated. You shall not be intimidated, Moses said. Why? For the judgment is God's. God has placed you in authority. You serve God and not man. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid of any man. Rather, serve the Lord. You're to fear Him alone. And this should give you courage. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18. Again, He's pulling from Deuteronomy regarding elders in every church today. This is talking about grievances and Chapter 18, verse 16, he says, If this person that you bring a grievance to does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, my officers, 
my commanders of tens and hundreds and fifties and thousands, my officers in the church, they have real authority. And if they refuse to listen to the elders of a church, then you need to remember that what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. He basically, Jesus goes on for three sentences saying, what the officers in a church do is real. It has authority. It has my authority. This is what Moses is telling the people as well. They're to be unintimidated. Why? Because the judgment is God's. The decision is God's. Jesus says, whatever you do on earth, I will do in heaven. The decision is God's. And what a wonderful, I mean, really act of grace and providence that he would ordain and use human agents to declare his decisions on earth. He's gifted church elders with his word, law, and intellect, and reason, and prayer, and their whole job is to serve before the face of God, to apply the law of God. And when they make a decision, a prayerfully made decision, the judgment is from the Lord. And if you don't like it, what do you do? You do what Moses said. If it's too hard, bring it to me. You take it to the next higher court. And that's the fourth thing, is that every judge is accountable to someone else. Every elder is accountable to a higher elder. If a case is too hard, Moses says, bring it to me. He was the highest authority in the land. So all of these principles, I think, are, are pretty powerful in that not only do they guide our country, but they guide our church. As imperfectly as they're applied in our country today, it's still a wonderful grace to have a civil government that is established on so many of these principles. This is also the core of Presbyterianism. Presbyterian means elder-led. That's what it means. It's a plurality of elders. And that's what we want in churches. You don't want one man in charge of a church. That's a recipe for disaster. Jerry and Jim have kept me out of a lot of trouble. We're ruled and governed by elders, just as we're ruled and governed by representatives in civil government. Whenever the elders face issues, Jesus is right there with them to help them, give them wisdom and comfort. So judge righteously, be impartial, be unintimidated, be always accountable. This is what Moses says these judges, these officers need to be doing. So recap, God fulfilled his promise to make them a numerous people. He's given them responsibility because of that promise. They needed to establish elders. And finally, he says, verse 18, now you just need to obey. Now do the things that I've commanded you. This is the conclusion. The things I commanded you, you must do. You should do. Remember, this is part of the prologue to this covenant renewal document. He's telling them, I'm about to tell you everything, but everything I've commanded you, you need to remember, you must do it. Verse 18 closes this particular section of the prologue to show that God has appointed His own representatives and they will also make sure that His Treaty, his covenant is carried out among all the people. And these men should be courageous to administer the justice of the sovereign king and the lives of everyone as they enter the land of Canaan and disperse all over this place. 
because it would be challenging. Our goal today is no different. We desire to be faithful to the Word of God. To be diligent in our Christian living, our ordinary daily life. This is where, this is where the money is made. It's just living for Jesus. Remembering all that God has done and promised to do. Remembering all of His bounty and promise to us. And living to God impartially, judging righteously, being unintimidated by any man, being accountable to other men. This is how we leave a godly mark on our, on our culture. And I'll just close with this last illustration. It's John Witherspoon, the, the clergyman, the minister that I, I mentioned, the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence. Um, John Witherspoon was an amazing man. He's a Scotsman. Um, he's a Presbyterian. If he's a Scotsman, he's a Presbyterian. Um, his influence is more significant probably than any other American in this founding generation. You might say, wait a minute, I thought George Washington were us. Maybe, but you just don't know all that George or John Witherspoon has done. He's president, leader of a college in New, of New Jersey, which was established to train ministers to provide a classical education. And from his training, all the people he trained, 20 were officers in the Continental Army. 13 became college presidents themselves. 23 became judges in the new United States of America. Three became Supreme Court justices. 21 were United States senators. 39 of his pupils were leaders in the House of Representatives. 12 of his pupils were governors. One was a vice president and one was a president of the United States. One man just doing what God had told him to do. Just waking up and serving God that day with the gifts that he had. And because of his influence, I believe partly because of his influence, we have a representative government that's supposed to be judging righteously and being impartial and being unintimidated and being accountable. This man was a committed Christian who loved the Bible. He lived it. He remembered all God's promises. He knew his history. His theology was decidedly covenantal and reformed, all coalescing around the Westminster Confession and all the doctrines of grace. And yet he was just a faithful man who did the work that God gave him to do. And hopefully this inspires us as well as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, to just do the things that God has given us to do and wait and watch what God will do on his part. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you as your people, and we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us the courage to live as the people of God. Lord, as Moses, as Moses called the people of Israel and the officers of Israel, the leaders of Israel, so you call each one of us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, to be impartial, to love others as you have loved us, to be unintimidated by any man, but to fear God alone. Lord, you have called us to remember your promises, to remember all that you've done for us, to remember all that you will do because you are faithful. You are like the rising of the sun. You are like the rising of the moon at night. You are like gravity that causes everything to fall to the ground. Lord, you are 
persistent and consistent, and you will never fail. Your promises are true, and your mercies are new every morning. Let us never, 